the Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. And I do say this every week because it's true. I sincerely appreciate you listening. I love it when I get somebody uh, communicating with me that says I've recommended Money Talks podcast and radio to my friends, uh, my family, that kind of stuff. Just know it's appreciated. And you are going to love today's show. Recommend it. You can feel very confident. We've got Doomberg with us. Doomberg is a group of analysts who came on, uh, just took the whole market by storm. I mean, two and a half years ago, nobody knows their name. All of a sudden, they're adding hundreds of thousands of people on Twitter. They've now left Twitter, which is an interesting story, and they're exclusively on uh, Substack, doomberg.substack.com. And again, the highest grossing financial, most popular financial newsletter on Substack. And the reason is straightforward. They know their stuff. They're from the industries like commodities, etc. They write about pertinent issues like climate change, uh, energy policy in general. Uh, I know that uh, you're going to really enjoy, but it's always informative when you get to talk with Doomberg. Looking forward to it. Also, I've got uh, a quote of the week that talks about, again, this trend about censorship. I think you're going to really like it. It's from the per, uh, foremost I would say right in the top, the short list of everybody on free speech advocates, someone who's lived it, who says, are we crazy? You can't restrict free speech because you're worried about hurting someone's feelings. Anyways, you'll like it. Obviously, he did a lot better job than I just did. So I, I, I think it's a fabulous one. Uh, we've also got a great goofy award for you. I know I chronically read regularly just sort of outrageous expenditures, no results in the federal government. Well, this one. Even though if you're on that wavelength and you care about how your tax dollars are spent, this one's going to grab your attention. It's absolutely astounding in the Goofy Award. Of course, I've still got Ozzy with me. He's going to give the latest numbers on real estate and what he thinks about it. i got Victor joining me. I've also got Ian Patterson of Pluralock. We talk a lot about cybersecurity for a good reason. It's a huge growing field, but growing exponentially right now because of the advent of AI, of things like chat GPT out there have created new security problems. I want to talk to Ian about that. As I say, so much more coming your way. But first, this week, one of the most respected newspapers in the world, the Financial Times, in a headline column, asked, why isn't Canada an economic giant? They go on to state, by any measure, Canada's geography suggests it could be an economic powerhouse, but few ever talk about it in such terms. By purchasing power parity, its economy is ranked 15th globally by size, by size, behind the likes of Turkey, Italy, and Mexico. The OECD has forecast Canadian per capita gross domestic product growth up to 2060 will be the lowest among advanced nations. Wow, the lowest, with the direct consequence that our living standards are going to drop, especially for our children. I mean, the constant decline in productivity per capita Decline in capital investment, well, that actually guarantees it. It guarantees a lower standard of living, especially, though, for our children and their children. You know what? And no amount of virtue signaling is going to change that. As former liberal finance minister Bill Morneau recently stated, in quotes, the number one issue we need to be focused on is productivity and growth. We'll be in a very difficult situation for the next generation if the current forecast for long-term economic growth come true. But polls indicate that a majority of Canadians don't seem to be worried, don't seem to care. And by the way, am I now considered to be on the far right for just pointing this out? Sorry, I couldn't help myself, given that anybody who talks about something that's not on the government agenda is now called far right or something like that. 
But that's the answer, actually, to the Financial Times question. Why isn't Canada an economic giant? Well, it's straightforward. The Liberal NDP government, with the support of the majority of Canadians, have other priorities, most notably climate change, followed by gender-related issues, which dominate the progressive agenda. And that's their right in a democracy. And it manifests in so many ways. For example, which do you think public schools put more emphasis on? Climate change or economics? Hint, you don't see school kids with placards protesting the size of the debt or unfunded public sector pension liabilities we're leaving them. But we sure do see them protesting or declaring the dangers of climate change and demanding an end to uh, fossil fuels. We have university faculties demanding divestiture divestiture of fossil fuels, but never, not once, has the danger of the massive run-up in government debt or the decline in per capita productivity on our standard living, has not once have been the catalyst for a protest. So which do you think our national broadcaster, the CBC, spends more time on? Climate change or economic issues? I'll give you a hint. It's not even close. Sure, the media is now focused on something like the lack of affordable housing and rents, but I see very little indication they understand how we came to that, though or the massive role that all three levels of government play in the cost of housing. I mean, I know it's not a new story. It's just thankfully getting at least some focus now. Now, I could go on on about the fact that we take our relative prosperity for granted. By the way, even while the most vulnerable in our society are suffering, but that definition of vulnerable is rising up the income sale. Now we find 57% of Canadians say they're under significant financial stress. I mean, we've got many people dealing with the prospect of losing their home due to the sharp rise in mortgage rates, and with many others being unable to afford the huge rent increases, let alone the sharp jump in food prices or gasoline prices over the last two years. But the question is, why does Canada perform far below our economic potential? And the answer is, because it's not a priority for the government and the majority of the public. Instead, at the federal level, the fi- level rather, the finance minister states that the increased anxiety in society, in quotes, has come on top of very real lived failure of capitalist democracy. The prime minister has criticized the f- uh, private sector on numerous occasions while advocating for bigger and more government intervention in the economy. My point is that there's no shortage of anti-business messaging from the federal government, which is hardly conducive to attracting the capital investment we need to enhance the productivity that the former liberal finance minister, Bill Morneau, that the OECD and a huge number of economists state is needed to protect our standard of living. Now, I'm not suggesting there's right or wrong priorities for government, but what I am trying to get you to understand or unequivocally state is there are consequences to whatever choices we make. As famed economist Thomas Sowell says, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Well, I make no bones about it. One of my favorite sources, analytical sources, is Doomberg, a group of people with a background in industry, commodity industry specifically, that writes with great debt and popularity, I might add, be the most popular financial uh, writers on Substack. And again, I sort of feel that they took the analytical world by storm and they did it with a simple formula. Know what the hell you're talking about. Do it with some depth and do it with clarity and at times humor too uh, with that. So I'm very pleased to welcome back to our show, Doomberg. Thanks so much for finding time. Mike, for you, anytime, of course. It's a great pleasure to be back and looking forward to another amazing discussion like we had last time. 
Well, I just want to start with this is that, you know, you, as I say, I, I think it's not uh, an overstatement. Say so you took the analytical, analytical world by storm. Of course, you've got that background, but, you know, come on, two and a half years ago, who's Doomberg? You know, 15 minutes later, you add another 100,000 followers to Twitter. Then you say, I'm going to go on Substack and I become the most fine, successful. And I'm just wondering, when you do all that kind of stuff and you write with clarity and it's really against the public narrative, um, you're going to get some blowback. So I just, Myself, you write in a variety of subjects. I just wondered, where do you get the most blowback? You know, it's an interesting question because my initial instinct is to say we haven't had that much blowback because we generally show our homework and, and yes. try to stay fact-based. And we, we link to every piece that we reference, and we always try to promote the work of others. And our specialty is bringing the industrial lens to the problems of the day. And there's very few people willing to do that because they're an industry and they're guarded by public affairs teams. And worried about stock options and themselves getting personally canceled and all of those things. But we do have one area when we write about that, we do get some blowback and that's when we occasionally drift into the crypto space. Mm. And in particular, um, some of the Bitcoin maxis uh, don't like some of the things that we write. And so I would say the one time that we got significant blowback was when we pointed out um, uh, this whole model that we've developed for analyzing crypto, which we sort of call the, the dollar world and the crypto universe and the pipes between them and follow the fiat and, and those types of analyses, which I think have proved quite prescient. Um, we did get a fair amount of blowback in that way. But as it pertains to the core of what we write, energy, climate change, solutions yeah. thereof, um, the politics of energy, the economics of energy, we have such a depth of experience and expertise on our team we are willing and able to debate anybody anywhere on any forum so long as the opponent um, has authentically held beliefs that they are willing to express politely and we show our homework and we we are you know we we've gotten very few facts wrong in any of our pieces and when we do we're the first to admit it and correct it and and ponder how it is that we made that mistake and i think that um the success of Dumberg can be attributed to Yes, the clarity. Uh, we have an outstanding editor, and I think our pieces are very tight. You know, an editor is not a proofreader. Yes. An, an editor takes good writing and, and, and tries their best to take it to the next level. And, and we have a very, like I, it's, I was telling you before we hit record, it's edit day today, which is my favorite day, because I can just begin to brainstorm and ponder the next piece. But the editor has taken what I've written overnight and is setting about the task of turning it into a Doomberg piece. And, and that industrial lens is, is very much missing. And I think Many of our subscribers are uh, not only Wall Street, but also people who work in the industry who are cheering us on because we're sort of carrying their torch for them in a unique way. And that, that's the real inefficiency in the market that we manage to occupy and succeed with. Well, I think, I, I, I think that's an absolutely a formula that's missing too often is here's my research. Here's my background to understand which parts are important within that sort of whole environment and then putting it out. Uh, and it, you've done such great work on climate, but also on what I would call the impracticality of the renewable energy thing. And the most blowback, just by ways of uh, sharing, the most blowback I ever got is, is saying, great, you want to do renewable energy, where are you getting the stuff? You know, but a, a strong statement in that regard, you're not prepared whatsoever to actually have a practical application. You know, we talk about the failure of the grid uh, to adju uh, adjust at this point, those kinds of things. And I just think your approach of having uh, the depth, I think, but as you just said, you provide the, uh, you know, sort of background for it, the understanding of it in so many different ways. Uh, and let me just come back to energy then. Uh, what's your assessment, what we've learned? And I mean, 
obviously there are areas that have improved. For example, the attitude toward nuclear, I'm, I'm going by the polls in Germany, seems to have adjusted uh, somewhat more positively. You know, in Canada, we have Ontario moving ahead with nuclear. But overall, have you, do you sense that we've learned any lessons really from the last, say, year and a half? It's a fascinating question, and it's the subject of what we're publishing on um, hopefully tomorrow. Um, and um, I do think we are seeing a renewed momentum towards logic and physics that uh, in our own small way, um, us and several others, uh, influencers, uh, are trying our best to shape the narrative. And look, this is what a democracy should be about. Um, we're very much pro-free speech. Um, there's lots of people with big platforms that I think produce idiotic content and, and dangerous content. And I'm not here saying they should lose their platform. I think they're a voice. And if they're more effective than we are at, at, um, at, at articulating their arguments, then the shame on us for not being better. Um, but we have jumped into the arena and, and we're doing our part. I think, and the piece we're putting out is on this upcoming COP28 meeting, this annual uh, yeah. jambor uh, jamboree of grievances, as we call it in the piece. Um, I do think we are at or near what we're calling peak ESG. Um, I think that um, ESG and renewable energy and, uh, put it this way, the ability to ignore trade-offs is a luxury of the rich. And we're spending that money very quickly. Uh, fiscal situation in the US, fiscal situation in Western Germany, industrial situation in Western Europe, I should say, not Western Germany, but of course, Western Germany is, is the at the apex. Uh, of these challenges. Um, I think the time for uh, indulging in thought experiments is quickly coming to an end. And our view has always been, let's take it as an axiom that we would like to minimize our carbon emissions. There's another side of the scale, which is we'd also like to maximize the, the standard of living we could um, deliver to all of the humans on the planet, which involves a combination of creating as much abundant energy as possible and equitably sharing it across the population. And, um, and so the, the time for um, indulging in fantasies that we could um, you know, shift our grid to weather-dependent renewables is quickly running out. And we think COP28, which is set to be held in the United Arab Emirates, is going to devolve into a farce. And um, I don't know if you know this, Mike, there's 70,000 people expected to attend this meeting. Oh, no, I didn't know that number. And yeah. as, as we say in the, in the piece, we actually made it. We draw a bar chart of the number of attendees per COP meeting. And it's, it's a blow-off top exponential. Uh, the very first meeting was in Berlin in 1995, had a shade less than 4,000 people at it, 18-fold increase. What are, we, what are all these people doing? Yeah. We, 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 we talk about it in a piece like, by the way, we, we are famous amongst our friends and colleagues for never having meetings. One yeah. of the secrets of our success, we, you know, about the, the way in which we could research, write, edit, post, and promote seven to eight pieces a month with a very, very small team is because we refuse to accept meetings, which means all we do is productive things. Yeah. And, and meetings are a giant waste of time. And, and again, as we say in this piece, um, the, the, the futility of a meeting increases proportionate to the number of attendees. And how can you get anything done with 70,000 people? And yeah, I, I, it's, I it's insane. In fact, when I, when I was an executive, I was famous for the five-minute meeting. If you want time on my calendar, send me the pre-read, ask me the decision you want, come to my office, I'll give you the decision and explain why we could shake hands and walk away and you can have 55 minutes back. I don't need the show pony, you know, uh, dog and pony show and, and to try to impress me, impress me with your brevity. Um, so. 
Well, I mean, the COP meetings, I think, have been a farce, but some, uh, sometimes very noteworthy. For example, uh, I was talking earlier this week about Al Gore's comment after COP26, when he basically said, we're going to have the technology to measure everyone's carbon footprint in the next year. And then society can decide whether to reward or punish it. I, I thought that was a frightening statement. Uh, another one, uh, coming out of the same meetings, actually, I think it's called I'm trying to think it's what, which consensus it's called, because there's always a new consensus, probably the Glasgow consensus, where 39 Western countries basically said, we want to uh, make sure that Africa never gets out of uh, energy policy because we're not going to put any money toward any kind of energy project. Then we got the shortages in Europe, and they said, well, we'll put toward that if you send it to us. So <laughs> I agree they're a complete waste of time, but sometimes they really let us know into their thought process. Uh, but I do think that this ultimately is is counterproductive to their ambitions. Yeah. Because and and in fact, the point of the peace cop out is our view, and we wrote about this in a, in a piece a couple of weeks ago, um, published in mid August, uh, called "It Was Never About Emissions." Yeah. Um, the whole stance and approach to carbon capture and sequestration will be the exception that proves the rule. Here, you have the fossil fuel industry ostensibly listening to the concerns of the radical environmentalist left and inventing ways to abate their emissions while still generating most of the energy that fossil fuels can provide to allow for all of us to enjoy our current standard of living. And who could be against that? Well, as we wrote in that piece, there's a subtle but, but important semantic shift occurring where environmentalists are no longer talking about emissions from fossil fuels, but they're focusing on the burning of fossil fuels. And it's the burning of fossil fuels that's causing climate change, even if you capture the emissions. And the most dangerous thing that the president of COP28, who happens to be the, the CEO of the, uh, uh, the United Arab Emirates National Oil Company, Al Jaber, um, he, he is making carbon capture and sequestration a focal point of the meeting, which is causing these people to go crazy, yeah. boycott, um, attack the country try to shift the focus towards human rights as opposed to climate. And look, they have a terrible human rights track record, but so do a hundred other countries. I mean, this is, you know, we do lots of business with China. Yeah. And, and so the, the carbon capture and sequestration bait and switch on emissions will be exposed at COP28. The industry has responded in the way environmentalists claimed they wanted them to, and now they're moving the goalposts. And I think this meeting will be the one where the energy industry is confronted with the reality that it was never meant for them to solve. It was always meant for them to disappear. And if they disappear, so does our standard of living. That's not a policy anybody could run on. We're seeing political blowback in, in Germany. Uh, we're seeing political bl blowback here in the U.S. Even Biden's response to, you know, $100 oil last year was yes. to empty the strategic petroleum reserve and to panic and to get gasoline prices down before the election because he understands $6 a gallon gas is the death of the Democratic Party at the national level. What does $10 a gallon gas do? And that's where the environmentalists want to take us. And so the original point that I mentioned at the top of this interview is our whole objective is to bring the concept of trade-offs to an intelligent level where we can have an open and honest debate. What's on the left side of the scale and what's on the right side of the scale and what changes do we collectively agree we should do for what benefit and at what cost? And right now, the population has been sold a lie. The lie is as follows. We can shift to a carbon-free energy palette at no sacrifice to our standard of living 
And the only thing that is stopping us are these evil fossil fuel uh, companies who have captured the government and, and are corrupt. That's just a complete lie. They know it's a lie. Um, I know it's a lie. You know it's a lie. But the broader public has been sold this over decades. And the sort of the collapse of that wave function, that realization that um, this actually is a lie and, and we can't have that utopia. So now that we know that we can't have that utopia, let's ponder what we can have and at what price and then make an intelligent purchase decision like you and I would do as consumers at the grocery store, for example. It's just been so woefully lacking. I mean, I've been this sort of lonely voice continuing when they propose policy in Canada. And I would say that, in my opinion, that Canada has no equal when it comes to virtue signaling around climate change, uh, especially on a per capita basis. But and my thing was always just simple, not saying yes or no, but tell me what the cost benefit analysis here. And, and I love your point. I use it in economics all the time and mentioned it earlier in the show, which is there are no uh, perfect solutions. There's only trade-offs. And, but that can, can, uh, completely gets uh, ignored. Let me just ask you this. Uh, what jumps to mind when you think the public's, you, you evaluate the public's understanding, but a couple of major myths. One is exactly what you've just been alluding to, that there, that there is a cost to this. We have a necessity of, of, of uh, fossil fuels. Uh, anything else jumps to mind? Uh, the uh, crazy uh, fear of nuclear energy, civilian nuclear energy and nuclear waste is probably the biggest distortion that environmentalists have successfully accomplished. And I would argue the solution to climate change is a, uh, an engaged propaganda campaign to counter the negative propaganda that environmentalists have um, convinced the average, um, you know, um, young married couple that uh, – you know, with, with young children who are worried about the future of the planet, that somehow um, nuclear waste, which is utterly manageable, uh, is an existential threat to, uh, to nature and, and to, the, to the world and to their children and to their grandchildren. This is just nonsense. Um, that is actually the biggest challenge. And I think credit where credit's due, look, you could say Canada has an awful lot of virtue signaling around climate change, but at the same time, Ontario in particular and Alberta also have some pretty uh, sensible energy policies. Um, Ontario in particular, and we wrote a piece called Cheat Codes, um, basically claiming that Ontario shows the rest of the world how it can be done. And kudos to the to the Ford government uh, for for articulating that policy, championing it in public, um, putting their money where their mouths are, and setting up Ontarians for generations of, of clean, carbon-free power, baseload power, reliable power, in a safe, effective, uh, and economic manner. Uh, and they they show how it can be done. You know, Justin Trudeau aside. We have a lot of uh, affection for Canada and uh, for a variety of reasons, and we know the country quite, quite well, I can assure you. Um, Canada, like Australia, is probably one of the two richest countries in the world, maybe top three with Russia. When you just look at the endowments, the, the commodity endowments the country's been blessed with, the strength of their institutions, the marvelous universities, amazing culture, um, uh, you know, Canada is really, in spite of its political leaders, is 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 one of the few passports I, I would love to have. I mean, the, the, the future of Canada is very bright. Uh, and I would say that the, um, the political discourse in Canada still amuses us. We love, you know, parliamentary question period and, you know, the CBC and CTV and Hockey Night in Canada and all of those great traditions, um, you know, that make Canada an amazing place. Um, but, but what really makes Canada an amazing place is this an abundance of hydropower, of forests, of fishery, of freshwater, of farmland, of oil and gas and coal and coking coal and, metals and nickel and zinc and gold and copper. I mean, you have it all. And for a country your size, um, 
having been blessed with so many resources. I do believe this proves that um, you know, climate uh, you know, uh, showboating is truly the luxury of the rich, and Canada is amongst the richest countries in the world. There's just no, no, no two ways about it. Well, I mean, it's astounding the efforts that have gone to not take advantage of the very things you're talking about. You know, I mean, I, we talked, to, I'm proud to say we, we went right down to the farm on this show, talking to farmers and, and some of the policies, you know, obviously the war on fertilizer right now being waged, uh, most notably in the Netherlands, but in, you know, against methane gas, most notably in Ireland, you know, we have the same things going on here. Uh, so agriculture's out. Well, of course, we don't want to really take full advantage of our oil and natural gas. That's proven. You know, uh, we'll see how well, how fast they can permit. They've they've come to realize that maybe we can help on the uh, supply chain challenges that, uh, for renewables because China owns so much of them and, and controls so much that we could do something. We'll see how fast that goes. Uh, you know, the list goes on about I, I agree with your list. But the other, you know, unfortunately, the overlay is we seem determined not to take advantage of it. Uh, let me I'm going to talk just one more thing about nuclear. Because uh, one of the things we hear about nuclear, and you've written about, I think is important, which is, you know, people say, well, it's just too expensive. And I sort of go, man, that's like our housing market. How much do you think that uh, governments contributed to those expenses? You know, regulation, et cetera, can raise the cost. Uh, it just doesn't have to be this expensive. Look, nuclear is expensive by design as a consequence of the highly effective propaganda campaign that the, the same environmentalists we mentioned earlier have been executing for 50 years. Canada built a gigawatt a year for 10 years, uh, 50 years ago. Uh, France built 60 gigawatts of nuclear capacity 50 years ago. You're trying to tell me that technology's gotten worse in 50 years? This is the one area where we haven't learned how to do things better, safer, cheaper, yeah. faster? Of course we have. Great point. 100% of the incremental cost of nuclear is by design. It is litigious. It is regulatory. It is meant to block, to delay, to make more expensive on purpose so that those same environmentalists can turn around and say, we shouldn't do nuclear because it's too expensive and it takes too long. Um, this is a political choice. China's building 50 reactors right now. Do you think they have the same imp impediments? Of course they don't. Um, so uh, China is churning out uh, nuclear reactors at a cost of $3 billion a gigawatt. That's the price. If we were serious about it, that's about what it would cost us. And um, at that price, it's, it's a pretty compelling because, of course, you have no carbon. You have 60 to 80 years of baseload power. You have high-paying union jobs uh, for professionals that become the anchor point for communities. Um, and, and you literally just, it's, it's the ultimate set it and forget it trade. And, and Lord knows we're wasting way more than that on chasing this renewable you know, nonsense. And so the, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, we wrote a piece called 100 Diablos. I don't know if you saw it, Mike. Yes, I did, yeah. Um, and we had a great Spaceballs reference at the end of it. Um, effectively, we did a thought experiment. There's this crazy technology developing called uh, direct air capture where fossil fuel companies are trying to take sort of abundant excess energy in the field and use it to capture CO2 from the air and pump it underground as a way to offset their carbon emissions. And, and we said, hey, how much nuclear power would you need to offset 100% of the U.S. carbon emissions. So we could keep burning diesel and gasoline and natural gas and coal, and we would build these machines that would just suck all of that CO2 out of the air and pump it underground permanently. How many nuclear power plants would we need to, to power the energy needed to make that happen? And it roughly comes out to about 100 Diablo Canyon nuclear power plants or 200 gigawatts of capacity. At 3 
billion dollars a gigawatt, which is what China's churning these reactors out for. That's roughly one inflation reduction act. Yeah. Yeah. And we would solve, we would, we would go, we would get to net zero just by doing that. Now, look, there's all kinds of other constraints and, you know, labor and technical expertise and so on, but thumb in the air, broad strokes, back of the envelope, McKinsey style interview question, as we framed it in the piece. Um, it's, it's about a hundred Diablo Canyons or two per state. Well, I, the other thing that is brought up there that I know you've, you've talked about, but we know the supply chains dominated uh, for renewables, sorry, and EVs dominated by China in so many different ways. Uh, and yet when you try and do a mine in the U.S. and you've written about this, who's opposing it? The environmentalists who want renewables. You yeah. know, I mean, the disconnect is unbelievable to me. I have no explanation for that level of disconnect. I mean, we do think it stems from the Malthusian origins of these organizations, but that's probably a, a subject for another day. But um, they, they are fundamentally anti-human. They view the world and nature as something that exists outside of humanity and that humans are basically the cancer that is spreading and ruining nature. Um, we have a different view, um, which is that humans can prosper and flourish and we could get much smarter about our footprint on the uh, environment. Our, our good friend, Dr. Chris Kiefer, who yes. is the host of a great podcast called Decouple. Decouple means how do we decouple the human flourishing from our ecological impact? And we'd be all for that. Um, I think, for example, the, the plastics in the oceans is a giant scandal driven largely by our desire to, quote, recycle. And all that does is have us ship the stuff overseas and they recycle it by dumping it into the ocean. Um, you, when you go across Lake Superior, you don't see that, but when you see it all over the Pacific. Um, and so, you know, burning of tires, there's all manner of things we do that, is, that are very dumb and damaging to the environment and damaging to humans and causes asthma and, and so on. Uh, we should be, you know, setting about the task of fixing those things post-haste. We're not uh, unbridled capitalists. We do think that significant regulatory controls uh, are important, but what happens is we have them here and we don't have them there. And so what happens is China takes over all of these supply chains because they're willing to do the literal dirty work. And then they have us over the barrel on things like polysilicon, um, you know, uh, rare earth metals, uh, the metals that feed the magnets, that feed the electric motors, that, feed, that, that power the electric vehicles, and, and the magnets that are at the heart of the wind turbines going up all over the U.S. Midwest and, and so on. And so, um, you know, we, we need to have policies that protect domestic production of the hard things to do, recognizing that there is a, an externality that's worth paying for, i.e. strict environmental controls, um, and that we shouldn't just allow Wall Street to offshore all this stuff and then send it back to us at a premium where we're still damaging the earth because all of this stuff. You no, know, I remember when I was in industry, Mike, and China first started to take over the, uh, the solar sector, and I was in the sector at the time. And I remember specifically pitching. Um, a procurement team at, at a very large you know, B2C company that you would recognize that has all manner of giant booths at these COP meetings. They like yeah. to you know, uh, brag about their, their sustainable bona fides. And I remember talking to the procurement person saying, you do know that China has stolen our intellectual property and that their water treatment plant is a pipeline to the river. And the reason why they're able to sell you this stuff for 25% less than we can is because they're cheating. And he looked at me and he said, that's for the courts to decide. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. And so the hypocrisy yeah. uh, uh, of it all was very plain to us. And this comes through in our writing. Um, back to your you know, uh, earlier questions about, about Doomberg and, and what makes us unique. 
we have that experience. We've lived it. We know how the world really works. And, um, and we know what the root cause of the problems are. And, and there is a way for us to create an economy. Look, if you drew a circle around the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, my God, what a powerhouse. Fertilizers, yep. farmland, labor, deep ports, extensive river systems, uh, farmland as far as the eye can see, uranium. We didn't even talk about uranium, yeah. the massive deposits in Saskatchewan. We had the CEO of uh, Next Gen Energy on as, as a pro tier guest for a fantastic interview last month. You know, we have it all. We have can do reactor technology, we have enrichment capabilities. You're trying to tell me the U.S. Department of Defense doesn't know how to enrich uranium? And can't pass those uh, those those secrets on to um, to, the, to the commercial civilian nuclear power sector. Of course they can. We have everything we need. Um, abundant fresh water. You just name it. Amazing institutions. All the things we talked about earlier that makes Canada so rich. You could draw that box around NAFTA, and we could be fully self sufficient. You know, we have heavy oil from Canada and and refiners along the Gulf Coast that have been built to refine that oil. Let's build the pipeline. Let's build Keystone. Let's get smart about it. Let's replace coal with all of the natural gas that we have. Um, let's build nuclear power. Let's focus on uh, reclaiming the polysilicon supply chain. Let's focus on plug-in hybrid vehicles to reduce our uh, gasoline consumption in a smart way that recognizes the constraint of battery materials. Let's develop those mines with the proper environmental controls so we don't have to rely on mines in the third world where labor is taken advantage of and, and the environment is degraded all in the name of, quote, climate change, when in fact it's just climate uh, from a distance. You know, I, my local climate is good, so I feel good. In reality, we're, we're degrading the planet just the same. We're just doing it in Peru and Chile uh, and so on, in, in, um, in the cobalt mines of the Congo. I mean, yes. Give me a break. Um, but, but the hypocrisy of it all is, is so repugnant that it, it sometimes you know, is hard to describe. Um, and you can tell I'm getting passionate about this because this is something that we, we think about all the time. Well, I, and I feel exactly the same way. I mean, there's something about child labor in the Congo that bothers me. You know, I'm sorry, I'm being sarcastic and expressing it that way. But sure. there's, there's so much, uh, you know, the ESG you started off mentioning. I mean, the, the, I think the game's up, the jig's up on ESG. And you're seeing some companies, but I think the public appreciates, wait a second, you know, that's not quite, uh, you know, quite the way it's supposed to be. And so much of the movement is undermined itself. If it, climate change is your biggest problem, I would suggest that the problem is over time, uh, we found out the emperor has no clothes. You mentioned, you know, COP, COP 28 coming up and all the other COPs, you know, just become a luxury climate fest for elites. You know, how many private jets are going to get them there? Uh, the list just goes on here. and. We've just started to maybe address some of the practical considerations as, as Germany. Sorry, I'm going on myself, but as Germany sort of, a, I mean, come on, how big a farce can it be that they get rid of their nuclear plants and become the biggest coal importers, you know, uh, you know, to power their renewable grid because it needs backup power, th those kinds of things. Uh, I, I just, I'm just not sure where we are on that, but I think the public has become a lot more aware and a lot more impatient with some of the nonsense we've been uh, fed. When we ponder whether we are at sort of phase shifts or, you know, yep. seminal moments, uh, we like to develop the sort of the metrics that we, we, we pull up on our screen every day. And one of them is, frankly speaking, the popularity of the AFD party in Germany. Um, hmm. Look, this is a party that um, the, the media establishment in Germany has labeled as far-right extremists and anti-immigrant and, you know, sexist and homophobic and pick your favorite, you know, yeah. uh, label that they throw against these People and, and we can't say that we've read their party platform too thoroughly, but as a protest vote, we think their popularity in the national polls and the establishment's reaction to them 
is one of the things we watch very carefully. I think many of the people, quote unquote, supporting AFD would find much of their platform distasteful, but they are so frustrated with the establishment that this is the only outlet that they have to express it. And, and I think this is something that we watch very, very carefully. We've always warned our friends on the left that the path function matters, that on the path from abundance to starvation is riot, both True. physical and political. And the growth, you know, the doubling of the popularity of AFD and their winning of certain local elections, it, this, is, this is the early signs, and this is what we're watching. And if it plays out the way we think it might in Germany, we suspect that politicians in the rest of the sort of G7 countries will, will catch wind, catch, catch, catch a, a sense of the direction in, wh in which the wind is blowing and shift accordingly. And that's why we think COP28 will be peak ESG. We think it'll devolve into a farce. We think carbon capture and sequestration is the ultimate calling of their bluff. And uh, we, we as a team, can't wait to watch what happens from a distance. We would never go, of course, because we don't attend meetings. Well, I can hardly wait to read about it, uh, you know, on doomberg.substack.com, doomberg.substack.com. I'm a subscriber, uh, again, because of the depth and the research and the perspective of people who've been in the industry. Doomberg, I mean, we could talk, I could talk all day with you, uh, give you a headache, I'm sure, but give, <laughs> with your background, the knowledge, et cetera. Let me just say thank you so much for finding time. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to the next time, Mike, and, uh, and have a great rest of your week. Thank you. Of course, interest rates were the spotlight again this week as the Bank of Canada meets. And it turns out they said, you know what? The data supports us standing on the sidelines. I'll remind everybody, by the way, they did that already in March, and then we had two raises subsequent. So it's no guarantee. But I want to bring Mike Levy in. A couple things I want to talk to him about. Mike, let's start with that decision. Uh, you know, it's not permanent, but they said from the data we've got, we're going to back off. And we talked about that, Mike. And it, it takes... Uh eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks for some of these decisions to work their way through the uh, uh, system, and in some cases, three and four months. So you know, I, I think after raising interest rates a number of times they did to the level they did, it was time to take that step back. They did, but Macklem indicated there's absolutely no doubt that the Bank of Canada will keep the pressure on and would in a heartbeat raise rates if they felt inflation was not easing and coming under control, and one of the the uh, things that they look at, the trigger points, is the employment numbers, which came out Friday, three times better than expected, 32,000 full-time, 8,000 part-time, and boy, that's just what he was talking about on Wednesday when he talked about taking a step back, but there was no doubt he'd step up again. And then I think this just throws us back into the middle of this situation wondering what and where we're going to go next. Yeah, so November, there'll still be a debate. I'm also worried about rising energy costs, you know, gasoline costs. That's still playing a part, you know, uh, another subject for another day. But your point's well taken. They didn't guarantee anything or didn't say this is it. Uh, people wishful thinking think it would be. But speaking of wishful thinking, this is the other part I wanted to get to with you, Mike, is that we had no shortage of politicians, all parties, all three federal leaders had something to say to the Bank of Canada Last count in my head was about three provincial leaders, but we went from the NDP out in British Columbia to the Conservatives in Ontario, uh, all weighing in on what the central, they hoped the central bank should do, weighing in on, uh, after, in the aftermath, oh, thank goodness they didn't do that. Uh, and I find that incredibly worrisome. 
Oh, I do too, Mike, and you can add to your list the uh, uh, liberal uh, premier of Labrador and Newfoundland. Oh, right, and, yep. Yeah, and, uh, but the federal, I, th- that got to me. First, there's Finance Minister Christia Freeland. Uh, she called the Bank of Canada rate hold a welcome relief for Canadians. That raises the question about whether the country's top fiscal authority should be openly commenting and commending the decisions of the central bank. And is she going to be on the other side if she doesn't like it? Conservative leader Pierre Polyev said if he was prime minister, he'd fire the head of the Bank of Canada. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said it's time for Justin Trudeau, whose government sets the mandate for the Bank of Canada, threatened uh, or said that, uh, or they do that every five years, to clearly give the message that policies that hurt workers and families raising interest rates are wrong. I've got to pause there. Inflation is even more wrong. I don't know what he's talking about. If you go his path, you're going to kill some Canadians, not literally, but just inflation is going to come back. So uh, I, I think and I know that you think that uh, it's terrible because the impartiality, the independence of nonpartisanship of the central bank in Canada is extremely important. And these are reckless acts that put impartiality in jeopardy, Mike. Well, and again, you said it was across the board. Uh, Donald Trump started this a few years ago when he started to put pressure on, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve there. Uh, they got a lot of company, though. Look around the world. Here's the, here's the relationship. There's about 160 currencies in the world. About 150 are having tremendous trouble or more. Why? Every time it's because you've had political interference with the central bank. Uh, you know, I was thinking of U of T economic professor uh, Rob Gillizo, who basically said this just proves they have no clue about economics. But we had people like uh, Derek Holt weighing in from Scotiabank, chief economist, again, basically saying that these people don't know what they're talking about and the devastation that'll bring. And I'm just saying uh, it was such a head shaker for me. I, I've got a neck brace on right now. Well, Mike, I, I, I just also just shake my head. Uh, um, you know, the last time this government, this government, the liberal government, and the conservatives really with Stephen Harper, really looked seriously at cutting the deficit and attacking the debt is back in the mid-90s when Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien got together and went to work on what is the most important part. This is going to be unsustainable debt and deficits for Canada. And what they're doing is setting the table for no economic or for no business investment, for no growing of the economy. And uh, now they're butting into the business of the Bank of Canada. I think it's going to hurt all Canadians. Uh, let me finish with this, and, and something that I don't think you're going to find in the commentariat referring to this episode, where they try and they comment on the Bank of Canada policy, encourage the Bank of Canada to take a different route. I think people don't appreciate the importance of independence in our institutions, that that's how we get protected. Do we really want the politicization of our justice system? That was the big worry with SNC-Lavin, the reason that Judy Wilson, Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned, you know, as Attorney General political interference. You don't want it certainly in your media. That's why there's been so much criticism of the uh, you know, media bailout fund and the CBC. You want independence in these institutions and especially the central bank. You know, that's how we defend our currency. Can you imagine if the same people who've brought us, uh, you know, such weak economic policies or financial policies over the years, oh, 
I know I'm going to start making decisions at the Bank of Canada that help me politically, that give me a political advantage. As you just said, Mike, this is a recipe for disaster that has played out throughout the world. That's Argentina. That's Venezuela. That's Tanzania. That's Turkey right now. The list goes on. And, Mike, you, you've just nailed it because every one of the premiers that I named, the uh, uh, head of the opposition, the finance minister, uh, every one of them, Jagmeet Singh, every, every word they spoke was for their own political good. It had nothing to do with the good of the country. It's how do I get reelected again? Maybe they'll listen to my rhetoric. Or maybe, as Rob Gillizzo said, this is displays an incredible level of economic illiteracy. Because <laughs> I'm never sure which it is. But Mike, thanks. I hope you go out and have a great week. As I say, I'll be wearing my neck brace till this one wears off. Have a good weekend, Mike. You know, I'm a big macro analyst. I take the big picture first. And one of the big picture industries has got to be, you know, cybersecurity. And cyber is not even doing it justice anymore because you've got AI. I had my own personal experience that I talked about a few months ago with my email hacked from a very clever email. Uh, basically said, hey, if you want to be six foot four and really good looking, you can do this by eating something at breakfast every day, you know. So how could I not click onto it? But that was the problem. That's why I'm always so uh, pleased to be able to go to our go-to guy, Ian Patterson of uh, Pluralock. Of course, this is what you do for a living, Ian. But as I say, I keep just thinking of new avenues. I want to talk today about the new challenges that artificial intelligence has created in so many areas. We're now more familiar. You are the first one to talk to us about chat uh, GPT. And I'm going back, you know, uh, about a year, though. I mean, it was just out of the box, kind of. But uh, so, I mean, you must be very busy. How is it going, actually, for you guys? Well, Mike, it's always good to be here. I mean, things are really busy. You know, you usually think that summer is a time to kind of slow down. Uh, it's been completely the opposite for us. Uh, recently announced our Q2 uh, set of financials, uh, closed out, uh, the, 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 close, closed out the, the six-month period at $28 million, uh, which is an increase of 74% year over wow. year. We also announced... Uh, that that we expect to realize about $2 million in cost savings on an annualized basis as a result of synergies from the acquisitions that we've done. And then the third, and I think we'll probably talk about it more, but we've launched a new product called PromptGuard, specifically tailored for companies trying to make use of generative AI, but to do so safely. Yeah, I, I mean, as I say, like a year ago, we wouldn't have been talking about that. You know, this is how explosive that industry is. I'll just share a quick story with you that I was listening to some people uh, in the graphic design industry with AI. They're very worried that it's going to, well, let's say dramatically change, you know, that industry when you can get a graphic image. Uh, you know, certain programs up in about three minutes and it's cheaper, more convenient. But they're also talking about some of the, the, the incredible exponential advances. And one of them being that it just grabbed me is he said, nobody ever taught, uh, you know, the programs to speak other languages. It was machine learning. It taught itself to, you know, and the one that grabbed me, maybe because it's so foreign to me, is Arabic. You know, the guy saying, well, we were doing a business proposal Presto, it was in Arabic because we were going to send it out to Abu Dhabi. And I'm going, what do you mean you didn't teach it? You know, and this is, of course, what machine learning is, but it just blew me, blew me away. Well, we're, we're seeing the same thing. I mean, listen, Mike, we, we work daily with our customers who, who run the gamut. I mean, they're, they're for the most part, they're in North America. 
but they're they're really uh, they're in heavily regulated industries. So think financial institutions, think healthcare, etc. And one of the challenges when you're working in these industries is that you have to be really careful about what tools you use because you need to understand what what data you are exposing to it. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, practically speaking, there's a lot of concern around generative AI tools. And if you allow your employees to use them, are you accidentally disclosing or leaking data? And so what a lot of companies have done is they've set up little innovation teams or labs where they're, they've they've blocked generative AI tools. So I think Samsung was the first one to completely block generative AI tools. And then they have certain, uh, certain teams that are, are doing a little bit of experiments. So we were working with one of our clients. Um, and, and we, and they relayed a a story around one of their innovation teams. And what happened was they were experimenting with ChatGPT and the user said to ChatGPT, Hey, I've got a, uh, uh, we've got a a file here. I need to do some work on it. And so they, they sent this to ChatGPT. ChatGPT came back and said, well, can you just upload the file to Dropbox? And first of all, that was a bit that was a bit of a strange response. Like, why does ChatGPT have a Dropbox account? But so the user said, well, actually, no, I can't. I'm not allowed. My corporate policies don't allow me to upload this file anywhere. And then the response they got back from ChatGPT was, no problem. Just email me the file. My email address is chatgpt at gmail.com. Now, obviously, that's not a real email address. You cannot email things to ChatGPT in that way. But the, the point uh, that you're making, Mike, and, and I'm agreeing with you, is that nobody thought to expect that response. Nobody thought that it was going to learn to respond in that way. And yet, to your point, it taught itself. Yeah, it's uh, it's astounding. And, and it's frightening, though, because, I mean, obviously, you guys at uh, Perlock work in this every moment. You know, and as you say, new challenges come up to you. You have to develop new products you know, obviously your client demands become greater and uh, great news for business. I mean, you get 74% increase in your revenues as, you know, I, I know a little bit about business and that's a good thing, uh, you know, that stuff. But I, I would just think the challenge and, you know, for individuals and for companies and, and I guess I'm looking for a little bit of advice for them. Uh, you know, as, there, as you say, you know, there's some big cost savings to be had. I remember you talking to us gosh, about 10 months ago saying, man, is this ever helping us? We're getting client proposals, you know, the background for a client proposal written, and then we we go over it and then do it ourselves. But just saved about one or two steps in that whole process. And I know now that businesses are experiencing this everywhere. Well, there's a lot of uh, interest, but there's also a lot of fear. Um, mm. So the, the fear is, is coming from a couple different places. I think the first is fear of of data disclosure. So if you're a healthcare organization, you have to be really cautious about where you put the personal health information of your clients. And there there are defined rules around what systems you're allowed to use and not differs a little bit if you're in Canada or the US, but functionally it means you have to safeguard the data that you have. Now, what happens if you put that data into a generative AI model and you've accidentally or intentionally granted it rights to be able to train on that. That's potentially a HIPAA violation. It's potentially a privacy violation. There's there's similar concerns that exist in other industries, financial services being one example. Um, one use case that we're seeing a lot of is HR departments who are um, you know trying to automate a lot of the work that they have to do. And so they, they might want to uh, put some data into ChatGPT and say, hey, write, a, write a, uh, a reprimand letter about Bob. Well, what have you just taught 
chat GPT now about Bob that he's frequently tardy, right? Those, those types of things. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing, we're seeing fears from, from the data perspective. We're also seeing fears though, from companies who are concerned about missing out of yep. this AI revolution. And so the question then becomes, how do we safely adopt these new technologies without incurring the data costs? But we, we have to do it because our competitors are doing it. So PromptGuard was really our response to that. And so it, it acts as a, almost think of it like a firewall where we allow the safe use of AI technologies without the, without the risk of, of disclosing confidential or sensitive data to these tools. I, I think that this is going to be one of, of many things that that organizations are going to need to use to safely use AI, but they're going to have to do, do something. I, 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 don't, I don't see any industry right now that will not be impacted by these AI technologies. And I would think that, you know, okay, and maybe the largest firms when they can afford to have, I'm trying to think of the right word, but people who aren't directly related to their business. So some like a, an AI expert on a mig, but mid-side firms, small firms, as you say, they're trying to save money. That's why they want to use these tools. I think you're, that's my experience too, is what you're elaborating on, which is, hey, people think there might be something here for us. It might be something here that will help us save money or to do better marketing campaigns. All of this stuff, you know, far more efficient and effective. So you're going to get people with that sort of, what am I missing out? But I don't have any background whatsoever to evaluate how to do it uh, safely, as you say. You know, it's interesting. I, I was invited to go speak at a conference in Atlanta, and it was a, a conference um, that spanned a, a number of different industries. And so there was a, a really good cross section of people in the audience. Um, and so there were some people who, who dealt with healthcare. There mm -hmm. were some people who dealt with with non regulated companies. And I did a you know a quick show of hands. You know, it was it was the, it was the uh, it was the presentation right after lunch. So you, you got to kind of wake people up a little bit. So I said, show of hands, who here has heard of ChatGPT? And universally, everybody put their hand up. And now, now keep in mind, Mike, this was a non-technical audience. And so I said, okay, well, follow-up question, who's actually used it? And I was, I was surprised. 90 to 95% of the room kept their hand up. And that was really interesting. And that, that actually mirrors what, what we're seeing in the business as well, which is that every, effectively every industry and every sized company, whether you're an SMB, mid-market or enterprise, or even a government agency, everybody is asking roughly the same question, which is how can I make use of these things? And in fact, the smaller you are, the smaller the organization or the smaller the company size, you're almost more likely to start to use these tools because you probably don't have a graphics design yeah. team that you can turn to. You have to do it yourself. And therefore, that becomes the on-ramp for Dolly or Midjourney or one of these other AI tools. So it's, it's a bit different than uh, a traditional IT product, which is, you know, you, you buy SAP if you're an enterprise and you definitely don't if you're a 10-person organization. That's not the case here. This is an equal opportunity um, technology that everybody's trying to adopt quickly. And yet we need, we need the safeguards and, and the, the, the guardrails to be able to do so safely. Let me finish with asking you, what's the coolest thing you've seen? I mentioned myself that I was just so shocked that the machine taught itself this huge variety of languages. You know, I, I mean, I was just blown away by it in a very excited way, you know, like science fiction-y. Uh, what about yourself? What, anything surprised you in that way where you go, are you kidding? They're already there? You know, weren't they not there a week ago? <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a good question. I, I keep seeing, uh, I think the thing that I find surprising is the variety that I see yeah. every single day. So it actually, it hasn't been just a single surprise. It's the fact that every day 
seems to be a new a new thing. So I'll give you some examples. Um, I've seen a couple of uh, businesses that are entirely run by AI. Uh, so these are ones that are being built in public that uh, every decision is is the AI is doing it and they are actualizing wow. it and, and we're just watching as it occurs. Wow. Um, but but that's been kind of interesting to watch. Um, I've also seen just absolutely lifelike imagery and videos created by AI that would have a year ago uh, taken a team of visual effects artists over months, and yet they can just be be generated on uh, you know within a couple of minutes. And it's just the the pace is never ending, and you have to stay. Uh, on top of it, if you want to, uh, to to maintain an edge against your competitors. And I would think that security and on that, of course, that's why you've developed new products for this, but security of, of your whole resources, your business, your data, et cetera, has got to be front and center. I mean, the cleverness of these people to immediately, you know, bad guys, I, I all say, you know, to take advantage of this is, is a great news for your business, as I said, but as something for everyone listening today should be aware of that that's got to be almost front and center of any exploration into this field. So I know you'll be busy. I'm still going to call on you again, Ian, but I appreciate you finding time today. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Ian, of course, is with Pluralock. This is what they do for a living. That's why we chat. Time now for the quote of the week. Now, to say I'm unimpressed with the superficiality of those trying to prevent what they perceive as hate speech, well, that's an understatement. I instead prefer to listen to thoughts of someone who's lived through hate speech but sees permitting, it, uh, permitting free speech as a way to uncover and countering the ing- ignorance behind it. I'm talking about Jonathan Rauch, one of the most respected thinkers on free speech, author of the highly acclaimed book, Kindly Inquisitors, New Attacks on Free Thought, which he recently updated. Mr. Rausch is an openly gay advocate long before there was virtue signaling and the self-described progressive movement. As early as 1991, he became a public force for changing attitudes and laws regarding issues like gay marriage, which I doubt I need to remind anyone was not a popular stand in 1991. He makes a compelling point, though, that the progress vis-a-vis gay rights was made through open dialogue, through free speech, much of it hateful. But only through free speech can the hate, illogic, and fallacies be exposed, not censorship under any guise. His take is especially pertinent given the Canadian government has passed Bill C-36, which purportedly addresses, in quotes, hate propaganda, hate crimes, and hate speech, and is now the law. But it seems like a heck of a lot of people don't seem to know that there were already provisions in the criminal code covering hate speech. But Mr. Rauch states, in quotes, No social principle in the world is more foolish and dangerous than the rapidly rising notion that hurtful words and ideas are a form of violence or torture and that their perpetrators should be treated accordingly. That notion leads to the criminalization of criticism and the empowerment of authorities to regulate it. The new sensitivity is the old authoritarianism in disguise, and it is just as noxious. Well, it's the hottest story in the country, and that is consistently talking about our housing problems. Why? Because they're not going away. But we just got the August number, so I'm going to bring Ozzy Jurek in here. And, of course, I hope you know that it's ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, just give me a quick rundown. What did you see in these numbers? 
Well, you and I last year talked every month about the literally collapsing volume of sales. We were 40% down, 50% down over 2022. So this year we have a lovely headline for August that sales of single-family homes are up 14%. Okay, well, let's look at that. That was 597 sales, and it's up 14% because in 2022 we had an anemic 525. And if you go back further, in 2021, we had 1,000. In 2020, we had 1,100 sales. So measured against that, we were still 50% down over 2022. We're 14% to 10-year seasonal average. Okay, so that's Vancouver. Uh, let me move you to Calgary. Well, that is the, the incredible story right now because uh, Calgary has seen uh, 2,729 units sold last month. That's a record. It has historic low inventory, which is opposite everywhere else, which sees rising inventories. And the Calgary market of some 3,200 units that they have for sales typically has 6,000 for sales. The other thing is that Calgary's, 30, uh, Calgary's sales of 2,700 are more than Vancouver. <laughs> I, I cannot recall many, many months uh, in the history that uh, that they actually beat Vancouver in sales. Well, I, I'm going back a couple of years, and um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you didn't say I was an idiot at the time. So <laughs> I'm going I'm to make you complicit in this. But I said, look, I think the real estate market in Calgary, which was down while Vancouver was growing in Toronto yeah. and Hamilton, Montreal, and I yeah. said I think it's going to be completely linked to oil prices and the, the robustness of their industry. Well, I think we're seeing that. We're seeing that whether we're looking at the Alberta budget, you know, and the year long, the, uh, the quarterly, all of that stuff. So, I mean, again, is that still too simplistic that I thought it was the best investment market going back two years ago because I was keen on the coming bull market in oil. So what about that thesis at this point? Well, I think you I think you called it, I think, two years ago on the immigration numbers. We had yeah. normally yeah. there was always people leaving Alberta. So we'd say this many go to Alberta and this many leave Alberta. Now it's all going to Alberta. Never mind the extra million people that come here and look at the prices and look at the senior city of Calgary and Edmonton. And then we have another million, as you reported last week, that we had not even counted yet. So we have all these people going. Now, my partners and I actually two years ago bought 33 condos in Edmonton because mm -hmm. we weren't so much looking for the instant profit. We're looking at a unit that's brand new at 170000 with heated floors, with views, you know, all of that kind of stuff that rents for 1700 In Vancouver, that $900,000 condo you rent for $3,000 is not an investment by no measure. It's, it's maybe a flip, but you couldn't call it investment. So Edmonton is an investment. Calgary is an investment because of 550000 for an average house measured against Vancouver's 2300000 How are you ever going to make it pay? So maybe it shouldn't be too surprising. What is surprising, the speed at which everybody is going to Alberta. Uh, but your point's well taken, and, and, and better than mine, is there several variables in play. And the in-migration number you talked about significantly, even before we got really clear on the size of the population growth in Canada, you were saying, look at the numbers. They're in-migrating here for the first time. Well, that obviously provided impetus for uh, an increase in sales. Uh, let me jump to that other big market, Toronto, for a second. But Toronto has, like Vancouver, seen a huge increase in new listings, almost 16% year over year, which is like Vancouver. We are actually, when you look at drill down in the numbers in Calgary, single-family home new listings are up a whopping 37%. Condos are up 20%. So you, you can see, even though we're going to the fall, which is normally our stronger market, we're coming up with, with increasing inventory on Toronto's average. Sale price is down. The volume of sales is down. 
And what's also, these are all sort of statistics that are not quantifiable. We can't really check on them, but we hear that the pre-sale market is in a free fall. Existing mm -hmm. units have been in the markets for months. The new launch uh, is not selling as well. In Vancouver, we also now launched a lot of pre-sales this month, and there is interest, Mike. It's just getting them on paper and getting them uh, to commit is still uh, still tough. Obviously not good news, though, because I think finally we're coming to understand we need more supply. You can't bring in that number of people and not have supply. And so when you hear of cancels, uh, or sorry, projects on hold, uh, maybe even outright canceled, that's just a bad news number if we're trying to solve the affordability in, uh, of rent, for example. But let me go to the other variable, though. It's, we're talking about mortgage rates. I mean, that's been the big bugaboo. It's not that people fell out of love with housing, not that we didn't have the people who wanted it. But, yeah, the mortgage rates, of course, have played the biggest part here. Well, then last Wednesday, everybody was waiting with bated breath to see what the Bank of Canada would do, and they kept the rates the same. But really, when you consider the bank is not raising rates and considering keeping them same, it means the economy is not doing well. It's slowing down. You know, it's this, this terrible kind of an opposite of influences. We have new housing starts are down almost 9% in the second quarter. Renovation rates are down 5%. We have debts increasing. And so, so even though the variable rate states or the fixed rate states, uh, it, it's not a sign that we're really very, very strong as an economy. Now, people don't understand the fixed rate and variable. A fixed rate is essentially tied to the two to five year bond rates. That's your two to five year fixed mortgage rates. A variable rate is the overnight rate to where the bank competes with each other and gives you maybe a slight discount. So if the rate is 6%, I say, you know, for you, Mike, we give you half a percent off. And so you should actually make sure that you get a good mortgage broker that gets you the best variable rate if that's the rate you're going to go to. So the insured mortgage that is you can get as low as 5.5%, uninsured it's up to 6%. The worst is the rental rates, the, the investment rate, which starts at 6.3 and goes sometimes over 7%. And what rate will you get? Depends on whether or not you had your TV repossessed recently. Well, <laughs> and maybe even that you don't have enough to cover. It's the old days. I remember going back, Ozzy, where you, to get the loan, you had to prove you had the money right then already, you know, yeah. to pay it off. And I mean, yeah. the people don't, uh, you know, as you say, I, I can understand there's sort of a currency kind of uh, bias there, but people don't realize that's the other side of the lending market. It's you can post the rates, but can you get that rate? Are they willing to lend? And we have had periods where, despite whatever was posted or people talked about, you couldn't get the money. And as you say, jokingly, if you had your TV repossessed, but I remember times when basically you didn't have three cars and four houses already paid for. Well, that's the thing, you know, it's a long time ago, but I was yeah. the general manager of Royal Page in BC, and I had a deal with the TD Bank, the general manager of TD Bank in BC and myself had this deal. Whatever my salespeople booked in mortgages in one year, he would make available for us the following year. So we're all working very hard with the bank because there was we would have the deal, but we couldn't get the money. And the yeah. money that we did get was 75%, not 95%, yeah. not 5% down. <laughs> no, it is fascinating, though, that history to see the evolution because all of it plays a, you know, a unique part in, one, did I get over my head with the mortgage, you know, or I'm regretting it now. We have polls that say a significant number of people regret actually buying, you know, and, and they still may be fine, but they're feeling the stress or what have you, you know. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, and it all comes from that. You're right. I remember when, yeah, 75%, then 80 
85, 95, oh, to hell with it, take the house. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and of course, that's what created, you know, huge problems when, you know, you get a 10% drop in the market, but that's all your equity gone. So yeah, it's fascinating. One more quick question though for you, Ozzy. Uh, stress test, that's the other, I want to go in, I want a new mortgage, as you've been preaching for a thousand years, well, you're not that old, but a thousand years that, you know, get pre-approved so you know what yeah. you're dealing with. But what's the stress test now? Well, it's eight. It's a, it's about yeah. as eight close to eight uh, percent as it is now. You know, you could have two arguments. You could say, well, if we didn't have had the stress test, then maybe some people would have qualified, uh, and now would be stuck with it. But overall, the stress test really hurts the the new buyer, the the, the one yeah. that we really want to yeah. help, because it's two percent beyond the mortgage that you can actually get. If I can get a five point five percent, and I have to pay two percent over prime, which gets oh, me yeah. to eight. It will knock me. It could knock me right out of the market. Yeah, a huge problem. But you'll be chronicling all of this, as I say, hottest topic in the country: affordable rent, affordable housing, uh, housing supply. The list goes on. There, you can find more with Ozzy at ozbuzz.ca. Ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, go out and have a terrific week. Thank you, Mike. And I want to make make a point. It's a free newsletter. We have now just under 26,000 people. Thank you very much. Uh, put your email in there and we'll send it to you. The one thing I learned this week, though, was it, it had my eyebrow uh, rising, uh, Mike. Uh, I know that a good golf partner is always one who's slightly worse than you are, right? And so I accepted that. But now I realize that's why I get so many down calls to play golf with friends. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'm saying... I'm having trouble finding anyone to play with me on that basis. I got to find someone worse. Ozzy, go out and have a great week. You too, Mike, and your listeners. Victor Dare joins me live from the trading desk. Vic, I was thinking this week that ultimately, virtually everything I would talk about or think about financially, even economically, gets reflected at some point in the currency. So when your currency is weak, you should pay attention. And as I was saying with Michael Levy earlier, most times, it's because the politics has interfered with about, you know, 95% of all currencies in the world, you know, suffer from that. But in this case, it's back to one of my favorite themes, as you know, the strength of the U.S. dollar. Yeah, the U.S. dollar index has been higher for eight consecutive weeks here. And just on the other side of it, of course, the, the euro has been lower for eight consecutive weeks. On my blog, I often refer to the euro as the anti-dollar. In the world of trading currencies, if you've got a bearish opinion on the U.S. dollar, sort of the first thing you look to do is to buy the euro. That's just how, yeah. the, how the market works. But when the euro is falling, say, it usually drags down all other currencies along with it. But in this case here, uh, let's say we, we could separate out the Asian market. The Chinese RMB or uh, yuan, whichever way you want to say it, is at a 16-year low here this week. And it's just sort of been, you know, one bad thing after another happening in China. But one of the, the way these things are tied together is that with the weak economy in China and the various other troubles they have there, they aren't importing that much stuff or they're, they're importing less stuff from Europe than they used to, and that's, that's just double bad news for the euro. So there you go. Euro's down, U.S. dollar's up. 
And again, and the euro doesn't need any help when you see the manufacturing sector, you see the exodus out of Germany, you know, the powerhouse, economic powerhouse of the EU. Then back to China, you know, everybody was hoping for a big uh, coming out party when the restrictions were lifted from COVID. That's certainly disappointed. And as you say, then we add on, you were chronicling this on your site, victoradare.ca. You know, I mean, look, they've got massive debt problems, especially in the real estate market. Simple as that. And, uh, you know, they've been building for a long time. So, again, that thing. Uh, how, what do you make of the Canadian dollar, though? Because it's fallen uh, quite a bit over the last couple of months. But despite the fact that crude has gone up, simplistic, but a lot of people used to think if crude gets stronger, Canadian dollar comes with it. Yeah, when one of the ways I look at markets, and I just can't stop doing this, I'm always looking at correlations. You're looking yeah. at if such an, one thing does this, then usually this other thing does that. So, yeah, you say to yourself, if the correlation has stopped working, why is that? Now, I just said that when the euro is weak, most every other currency is weak as well. The Canadian dollar, yeah, gets a, gets a lift let's say, I mean, the Canadian dollar would be weaker than it is yes, okay. if it wasn't for the fact that the crude oil has gone up as much as it's gone up. And and by the way, I mean, crude is up about 30% here from where we were about 10 weeks ago. So, yeah, you, and even with that, the Canadian dollar dropped uh, three cents or so. So I think that's it, Mike. The interest rate differential, the, the thought has been that Canada is not going to be raising rates. The United States probably isn't, but might. So that kind of puts a bit in the U.S. dollar. And then the, the relative, uh, let's call it, uh, risk tone in the market. And when the market goes risk off, Canada's weaker. And when market tone is risk on, Canada's strength. strength your, your point's well taken, though. I mean, we may be much lower if we didn't have the oil boost. It just hasn't resulted in, you know, a big gain. But there's another thing, I want, you know, around uh, the WTI, with the oil price, you know, Brent crude or, or WTI, is that, Gosh, if it's had that kind of a 30% move since the lows just a couple of months ago, mm -hmm. think of what it's done in some of these weaker currencies. I mean, it's a disaster. Uh, across, you know, People should understand the ripple effect in that can be disastrous for a, a country that imports oil with a weaker currency. Yikes. Yeah, you can imagine that the price of crude oil has gone up more than 30% in the last uh, couple of months if you're looking to buy it with Japanese yen. Because yeah. the yen right here is right back to where we were in, call it October of last year, when the authorities intervened. It's it's such an oddball thing that's happening there. You know, their inflation is rising, but they're keeping a cap on interest rates, not letting them rise. And you, there's an old thing called a trimella here, that you can't control your currencies and your interest rates if yes. you've got an open economy. So what is happening is they're keeping interest rates down, so people are just taking the boots <laughs> to the Japanese yen. Now, when I say that, what they really do, the, the fancy guys in the hedge funds, they can borrow yen and buy other things with it because of the, it's a very cheap funding cost in, in, in Japanese yen. And in a cross-currency play, the absolute home run hit of this year has been to be short the Japanese yen and long the Mexican peso. Wow. I didn't do that second part. Okay. <laughs> uh, Vic, uh, go out and have a terrific weekend. I want to invite people because, uh, you know, you said last week that, okay, school's out, now school's in this week. You know, that, uh, did you see that increase in volumes, that increase in interest? 
You know, yeah, I thought the markets often sort of come back with a bang after the yeah. summer vacation. If if anything, it's been sort of subdued so far. Uh, there's some, the, the, there hasn't been anything chaotic, that's for sure. Yeah, well, enjoy, enjoy the one day of peace and quiet you get in a seven-day week. People go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. I'm looking forward to seeing what charts you throw up this week. Vic, have a great week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the Goofy Award. As reported by one of my favorite outlets, Black Locks Reporter, which is an indispensable source for finding out what's really going on in Ottawa. But I want you to listen to these numbers. Since 2019, 27,323 consumer complaints regarding breaches of the Bank Act have been received by the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. 27,323 consumer complaints. By the way, the agency has a staff of 182, a $37.1 million annual budget, headed by Judith Robertson, who was appointed by Cabinet. It's a $285,000 a year job as commissioner. So, 27,323 complaints. How many did the agency follow up on? Zero. You heard that right. None. Instead, complainants received a form letter stating, Day-to-day operations and decisions of financial institutions are not regulated by FCAC, the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada. They determine their own internal policies and guidelines. Hmm. Okay, so in other words, we're doing nothing. But that's the fight, despite the fact that the Financial Consumer Agency was established in 2001 to, in quotes, protect the rights and interests of consumers of financial products, end of quote. And that's also despite the fact that in her last annual report to Parliament, Commissioner Robertson stated she was, in quotes, protecting financial consumers. Hmm. And went on to say, consumer complaints received directly by the agency are reviewed for information relating to the regulated entity's compliance with consumer protection measures, end of quote. Well, obviously, that's not happening. Come on, zero followed up on? I mean, that's just mind-boggling. I don't know what's being accomplished, so I don't know how you determine what's being accomplished on behalf of taxpayers by an agency with a staff of 182, $37.1 million annual budget. But you know what? Given how often this kind of story is repeated, no, no benefit to taxpayers, the cost-benefit analysis, that stuff, you know, at some point, Canadians have to decide we've had enough, that we care. That's all the time we have for today's show. And let me again repeat, when I, I get notes every week that say, hey, I've been recommending the show to these people and that person or my cousin, I can't tell you how much we appreciate that. And my firm belief is the more we know, the better informed decisions we can make. And whatever decision you choose to make, that's fine. Whatever your priorities are for government, that's fine. Your priorities for your own financial situation. I just think the more information you have, because I think these are indeed in extremely troubling times, extremely troubling. And you had to take action. I'm proud of the actions that we've been recommending. They've turned out to be absolutely the right ones. And we're going to continue to do whatever we can to protect you financially. And that's why I do appreciate you listening. I do appreciate you going to Money Talks tweets. I highly recommend it. Uh, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. And as always, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and sign up for five minutes with Mike. Just a little brief. It takes you about not even five minutes if you're a good reader and to get some of these facts and information. In the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week.